Get ready for a little surf and turf action on Midnight Run Through, a podcast miniseries devoted to celebrating the 1988 contemporary classic action buddy comedy Midnight Run, written by George Gallo and directed by Martin Brest. Co-hosted by me, Jen Johans from Watch with Jen. And me, Blake Howard from One Hate Minute Productions. Each week, we'll explore the film we first bonded over when we became friends in 2019 by surfing through the incredible roster of guests from journalists to novelists and beyond who love it as much as we do. Digging into Serrano's finances and Alonzo Mosley's FBI files, come with us on Midnight Run-Through as we crisscross the United States with the characters played by Robert De Niro, Charles Grodin, John Ashton, Yafit Koto, Dennis Farina, Philip Baker Hall, Joe Pantoliano, and company on screen. Today, our guests are... Hi, I'm Corey Everett, creator of Cinephile, a card game. And I, on the other hand, can say that I'm Ethan Warren, and I'm the author of the book, The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha, available now wherever you order your books and in some bookstores, but not that many, I don't think. But before we go any further, let's kick things off on Jack Walsh's old turf with the ultimate question. Why were you so unpopular with the Chicago Police Department? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, I, I just wanted I wanted to start with one thing, which is a clarification to say I, Corey Everett, have no relationship to the movie Midnight Run. I saw it in college. <laughs> I think I liked it fine. And I had not revisited it uh, until last night, just before this conversation, where I liked it much better than fine. Uh, but the reason <laughs> that I wanted to talk about this, uh, and especially with Ethan, is because uh, Midnight Run is a pivotal movie for Paul Thomas Anderson, who I've spent my life studying his works. Um, and so I thought it might be fun to revisit and see if there are more connections and and things that could be discovered uh, from another viewing of the movie. And I think that the thing that's so important about the movie is that essentially, uh, you know, as, as Ethan knows as well, it basically ties into uh, the Paul Thomas Anderson origin story in a really important way, which is that when he was at uh, Montclair Prep School, he's a 17, 18 year old kid, you know, probably a senior uh, he told his teacher, he said, Miss Stevens, I'm going to be a famous director. I'm going to win the Academy Award, right? Pretty, pretty big shot to call. Hasn't happened yet. Probably will happen at some point. You know, he'll have to settle for best film of the century, says the New York Times. But it's let's assume that's on its way. All right. But then the other thing he does is he goes to see Midnight Run, you know, 1988 summer movie theaters, 18 year old Paul Thomas Anderson. And he walks back into this same teacher's office uh, uh, and he says, uh, he basically hands her a piece of paper and there's one word on this piece of paper. And that word is Sydney. And he tells the teacher, he says, uh, this is going to be uh, my next film. And so as you you guys know from hosting this podcast, Sydney uh, is the character played by Philip Baker Hall in Midnight Run. The thing that I did not remember uh, until watching it last night is he has about three minutes of screen time in yeah. the entire fucking movie. So <laughs> think about this 18 year old kid, you know, who loves movies, who goes to see this, you know, summer action comedy with a just incredible stacked cast of character actors and with Groden and De Niro at the top. And the thing that he comes away with is 
that guy, that guy who's sitting across from Dennis Farina, whose reflection you see in the mirror, who every time they, the kind of breast is, is, is filming him like he has some mystery and he has some stature and he's introduced it 45 minutes in, but then Farina is just constantly dressing him down, you know, shut the fuck up, Sydney, you know, every time. And, and he thinks that's the guy I'm going to make a movie about. And um, I just feel like that is one of the great I'm calling my shots in cinema history, because as we all know, his first movie was Sydney, later retitled Heart Eight. And that was seven years later. That's how I make podcasts, Jen. Can you agree to that? Ethan? Wait, wait, yeah. 80, uh, 96, 97 to, so maybe nine years later, but still. Sure, still, damn. Yeah. yeah. My favorite thing about what you just said is I'm one of those people who watches a movie and gets really excited about Ricky Jay being in a movie for like three lines and is like, I went to see the new Ricky Jay. And, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. So my love for Paul Thomas Anderson and three minutes of screen time, like that's my guy. Yeah, I love you, that. Yeah, you and Paul Thomas Anderson watch movies the same way. And <laughs> and the, the, the kind of minor thought that I had last night while watching the movie was that, you know, the way that Tarantino's project in the 90s was kind of taking these movie stars who were maybe not at their peak and giving them a showcase role that that brought them back to the fore and showing everybody what they could do. You know, John Travolta, Pam Greer, Robert Forster, you know, what have you. But PTA's project was a little different, which was he would go see Midnight Run and he would pick out the Philip Baker Hall that's in three minutes. He would go see De Palma's Casualties of War and he would pick out the John C. Riley. He would see, mm-hmm. again, Martin Brest's Scent of a Woman and pick out the Philip Seymour Hoffman. And he, he would look at those guys and say, I'm gonna give them something to do. And that was how he assembled his, you know, troop uh, throughout his, you know, certainly the the beginning of his career, but even still to this day. Ethan, you've been uh, playing possum over here in this conversation. And that to me tells me that you've got a litmus configuration take that's waiting. I don't know if it's spicy. I don't know what's happening over here. Something's cooking, Jen. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you know, here's the thing. So now as far then. as I'm concerned, Corey just kind of said about all there is to say about the relationship between PTA <laughs> and this movie. Um, so now we just get to play jazz, which is very exciting because that is that is the real tangible link there. Um, and he has not really commented on Midnight Run since. It's not one of his touchstones. Um, Martin Brest is not one of his guys. Um, I'd love to talk to whoever Martin Brest is a guy for, um, whoever goes on Mark Maron's WTF and goes, Martin Brest is really my guy. One of your guys? guys? Dan Mecca, I think is, uh, is a Brest guy. (laughs) Oh, big time. Big time. Even, even a meet meet Joe Black defender. Dan, Dan (laughs) rides all the way through. Absolutely. Yeah. Fair enough. I mean, I we'll guess I was thinking like that wh- into a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> which which directors are using breast as their like who they're pointing at? Um, that I'm curious about. Um, but I mean, the thing about him picking Sydney out of this whole movie is he he's just always PTA has always had this fascination with uh, older guys, mm-hmm. and so he's he's gonna gravitate to the sort of broken older guy. It seems, and and that's borne out in his work later on um he's not gonna so much gravitate to the Farina as he is the the guy who he he 
maybe he already wanted to make his first movie a story about an old man's regret uh because that's so much of what sydney Hardate is is anchored in is is that idea that it's um oh what is it uh the james cagney movie right uh white heat it's yeah. it's like the 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 sequel the the imaginative sequel to to white heat um the the what if what if the hard ass had survived and lived to regret another day and so maybe he he glommed onto that as like that's the guy that's my my bob le flambeau to use the other common touchstone <laughs> on, on sydney hardate um i always have to to jam in sydney and hardate because i i can't commit to one or the other because if i say just hardate travis could get mad at me mm. but if i say just sydney i'm gonna get mad at myself um, so I just always have to say both titles. Am I right to say here, because obviously Philip Baker Hall, one of one of PTA's guys, if he's not a breast guy, he's definitely, um, uh, he's definitely, definitely, definitely a Robert Altman guy. And I wonder seeing, I wonder had he seen in his timeline, because that's the other thing, is that he says that Philip Baker Hall was like, he said he's like the greatest American actor and he'd seen Secret Honor, which is directed by Altman, um, starring um, uh, Philip Baker Hall. And so I wonder if around that time he had seen like the polls of this guy playing front and center in essentially what is like a one-man show of a movie and then bouncing into this and playing a supporting actor and still having depth you know, having something to offer and being that sort of more experienced and less flashy and looking into the corners um, of, of those different characters. Like, uh, so I wonder if, if that was, if there was a sequence there, cause I don't know, like back in eighties, late eighties, like that's not quite full on VHS home video era. Would Robert Altman's secret honor have shown on television? Like maybe would he have gone to see it at the flicks? I, I don't, I can't sequence that in my head. And I know, and uh, you know, you two are my friends. So I know quite a bit about Paul Thomas and Travis. So Paul Thomas Anderson is, uh, is someone who is like his, his history. I'm pretty familiar with. Ethan, do you know the answer to this? Because in all, in all my research, I actually don't know as best as I can figure it. I think Midnight Run came first and Secret Honor was maybe a post high school, college video store, late night TV type discovery. And I'm sure that even, you know, strengthened his resolve. But but as far as I can tell, kind of Blake, as you said, like, I'm not sure that Secret Honor was like a thing that, you know, teenage Paul was hunting down, you know, at the theater. But I, I, I think it was something he came to later, though I don't for sure know the timeline and, and that was a movie that came in altman's kind of wilderness period of you know post 70s heyday and rebuilding and experimenting and he shot that i believe at a university with like students as the crew and it was he was adapting plays and he was working quick and dirty and so it you know that that wouldn't have hit big even even among like film nerds you know yeah. it, is totally understandable that it's kind of something that you know, maybe was discovered later. Um, the the other thing that happened in the you know eight years between the piece of paper and the midnight run screening and and um, and making Sydney you know hard eight with Philip Baker Hall as the lead is obviously him uh, meeting Philip Baker Hall uh, as a PA on a TV movie starring Philip Baker Hall basically going up to him and and handing him the script for Cigarettes and Coffee, his short film, which was kind of expanded into uh, Heart Eight. Um, 
and basically coming up to him, you know, with all the moxie, you know, 20 year old kid and, and being like, you know, I wrote this role for you, Philip Baker Hall kind of treating him a little bit skeptically of, yeah, sure kid. And I'm sure, you know, all the time, every PA has a script and a dream. And then he reads it and just can't believe the quality of the writing and is basically, you know, on, on board to help him make this thing. And that starts he compares his career. it to discovering Shakespeare. That's that's his quote. I wondered if the first person to ever read a Shakespeare play knew what they were looking at, because I sure knew what I was looking at. Whoa. God damn. That's good. You know what, Ethan, I was kind of curious because you are a Paul Thomas Anderson scholar, but more than that, just as a fan of movies, what is your relationship to Midnight Run? Were you always a fan? Was this something later? Um, I always sort of knew of this movie without uh, having seen it because like I knew that it was a movie that inspired acolytes. You know, there's there's that handful of movies out there that just like that is some people's movie. This is Alan Sepinwall's movie. This is Chad Perman's movie. Bill and Simmons. So just, sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sure Bill Simmons has all kinds of comparisons to professional sports as to how this movie is put together. Um. This is this is the the Michael Jordan of of movies, basically, is my perspective. Um, that's my Bill Simmons impression <laughs> as a guy who doesn't <laughs> know sports. Um, no, I watched this movie for the first time uh, in the spring of 2020 when I was uh, stuck in the guest room of my house all the time because that was as far as I could go away from my children. <laughs> uh, so that was where I went to to do my work, and a lot of time my work meant watching movies, and that was when I was writing about heart eight sydney and um so i figured i may as well finally watch this thing and when you are in the depths of it covid wise i didn't have covid but we were all in the depths of it in terms of discovering what covid was and having a really terrible year um this movie was like a just a blast of pure joy um just immediate like Four and a half stars. I can't quite get to five yet. Maybe I'll get there, but immediate four and a half stars. Um, just you're get, about perfect. You, you're going to get to it. I know. And, I, to, and I know how you're going to get to it. That's what this podcast is about. Number one, yeah. you get, you are going to get to it because you're currently in the depths of studying. The poles of your interests are like a lightning bolt for this movie, mm-hmm. which is Paul Thomas Anderson That's and Jim Henson and uh-huh. Charles Grodin. In the middle, in Midnight Run, yeah. shows us that if you can seduce Miss Piggy on screen, like I, I have this theory that if you can act sincerely and knock a performance out of the park, like Peter Falk or like Charles Grodin in a Muppet movie, you are an all-time Hall of Fame. Like you need to be on a Cinephile Game Night card and probably from the Muppet movie that you're in on that card. Like that's what you deserve. Someone, Corey and his art is beautiful, like gorgeous little still of their face because... Grodin is the, like, his timing is flawless. And I feel like that's the, that's the Venn diagram of how to get you to five stars on Midnight Run. Sure. I'm thinking right now of like the Mount Rushmore of Charles Grodin. If there were four Charles Grodin faces lined up next to each other, it's Midnight Run, definitely. Um, And it's the Heartbreak Kid. But what else? What are, what are the other two? One's the Great Muppet Caper. You you think okay? Uh-huh. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll give it to you. A hundred percent, Jen. What's your fourth? 
you know, I'm probably one of the only people, and probably Scott Weinberg is the other one, but I love the movie. Oh, Peter Avellino is up there, too. Uh, Seems Like Old Times is a film I love I don't a lot. I know that movie. Oh, my gosh. It is delightful. It was written by Neil Simon, actually, for the screen. It's Goldie Hawn, Chevy Chase, and Charles Grodin. It's a love triangle. It's hilarious. It makes you want to eat a dish called chicken pepperoni because they say it like 48 times <laughs> in the movie. They, it's like a punchline. It's hilarious. I Yeah. Watch that movie, Ethan, and then get back to me. Yes. The reason that I responded a little more coolly to it the first time I had seen it is Grodin to me was the guy in Clifford. He was the guy in Beethoven. Yeah. He was the kind of you know, older Groden and the, the grumpiness had maybe a darker edge to it, uh, whereas there's a lightness to it in the earlier part of his career and kind of revisiting it last night um, after having rewatched The Heartbreak Kid at the American Cinematheque earlier this year, which was so fucking great. Only the second you time I'd seen it. <laughs> and on the big screen, on 35 millimeter with a sold out crowd. And it was so good. And so I think I'm, I was bringing that Charles Grodin into Midnight Run instead of, you know, the, the one that I had kind of grown up with, you know, in the 90s. Um, and so, yeah. And then so basically watching it and thinking, what are, um, what are, if any, connections that I, that I can find? Because, you know, as, as Ethan said, I don't know that Brest is one of his guys, but the thing that makes PTA such an interesting filmmaker is, his guys are not just the ones you would think. He's not mm -hmm. just Kubrick and, and Demi and Altman all day. You know, he also makes room for the Adam Sandler comedies and he also makes room for the Martin Brest comedies. And he he Terminator he, Two, the key part of his mythos. He walks out of film school because somebody badmouths Terminator Two. <laughs> exactly. And he's just always and a guy who, who's who's not about guilty pleasures. You know, he really is like a, a stand-up guy. They actually um Two years ago uh, at the American Cinematheque here in Los Angeles, they did a screening of uh, Midnight Run and Beverly Hills Cop back to back. And in the middle of the screening, PTA moderated an hour long talk with Martin Brest, um, mm -hmm. which is really good and loose and funny. And PTA is being kind of so deferential to Brest, who, you know, kind of had this imperial period, you know, made a couple smaller movies basically was really hot in the center of his career, kind of had a couple flops and has, you know, vanished himself from Hollywood. Um, and that was his and, first appearance, Corey. That like for, for people who were fans of Midnight Geely. Run. Yeah, because like Geely killed yeah. his career, if you like, you know, fairly or unfairly. And I think- the, Which I, I've never seen, so I can't, I can't speak on it, but- I didn't think it was the yeah. worst movie ever. We'll be back after this quick break. Yeah, uh, well, PTA, is, I wrote down a quote from the Q&A where he says, he says, like Stanley Kubrick, we always have to wait seven years before the next Marty Breast movie. They take forever and ever and ever. And we wait and we wait and we wait. And I think it's his way of kind of nudging him back to like step up to the plate again. And like I said, I, I haven't seen Gigli, so I don't know. But from the outside, it seems maybe like one of those things where it's like it was just kind of a movie out of time. And if he was trying to recapture a midnight runish tone and it's a couple degrees in the wrong direction. And also it's the early 2000s now and different, you know, 
types of movies are are kind of becoming the mainstream. It's one of those things that people just reject because they go, you know, we don't we don't want this. Uh, Jordan Harper, who's a friend of ours, has a good line. He says, with every year that goes by, every movie made before the 2000s is retroactively better. Yes. And I think, <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I like what you were saying about how sometimes their guys are not who you expect. I am not a big Nolan fan. Um, I like some of his early stuff. I'm not a huge Nolan fan. I love Dunkirk. But I got the biggest kick uh, this week. I saw an article like citing him saying that Talladega Nights, the legend or ballad of Ricky right. Bobby is one of the all time great comedies because I actually agree. And I think <laughs> as far as a post 2000 comedy, like I love Anchorman. This is my Anchorman, though. I think he I likes McGruber it. as well, which is my anchor man. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, um, you know, not what you would expect. And it's, it's a film. Like when I tell people, Oh, I love Ricky Bobby. And they're like, what, you know, like, so it just sometimes when people surprise you with their taste. And so I think sometimes, uh, you know, we'd like to think Paul Thomas Anderson, Oh, he's a Scorsese guy. He's an Altman guy. He's this he might be a breast guy. I mean, obviously he is. And I love that we keep saying breast guy through this whole conversation and nobody <laughs> is snickering, which I have to Until say, now. Until now. Yes. And now I've just made everyone blush. But anyway, yes. Yeah. Well, you know what movie made Paul Thomas Anderson cry was Men in Black 3. So... Whoa. And, and he, put, he put Venom on his favorite movies list. No, he likes the weirdest movies. And Men in Black 3 is so stupid and i watched it based on him saying that and it didn't make me cry the thing about all movies before like you know the late 2000s is they were all shot on 35 millimeter film i went yeah. back and watched big daddy for my book because you know that's a key part of the the paul thomas anderson adam sandler relationship is his affection for big daddy and that movie looks like you know a peter bogdanovich movie or something at this point just for like the lush texture of it all. Um, so that is my point about early movies before early, the late 2000s. Early movies before the late 2000s is that they all look beautiful now. Yes. We have Including the Midnight Run. name of your book, Early Movies Before the Late 2000s. <laughs> I mean, it's perfect. Yes. Um, Midnight Run looks especially incredible. Uh, so that was oh. that was one thing that probably had changed for me again between when I watched it, you know, 20 years ago and when I watched it last night was just marveling at some of the shot compositions. As I was saying, when you're when you've got Dennis Farina and Philip Baker Holes kind of in the mirror behind him, mm -hmm. or when Joe Pantoliano is in the office and you can see all the way layers to the street outside, and there's so much texture and detail and incredible um so i mean that's kind of an easy thing to ad admire about it now and then blake as you were saying is is just his his casting and so beyond de niro and groden at the top you know you've got uh yafet koto you've got dennis farina you've got joe pantoliano uh john ashton from beverly hills cop uh Jack Cahoe, I had to look up. He has an amazing face. It's just like this movie full of just great character actor faces and guys and the the kind of texture that they bring to something. And this is something I think I may have even complained to Blake about before, but it's that new thing where you'll have a Netflix type movie and there will be a movie star on the poster and then there'll be two other actors that you know and then no one else in the entire movie have you ever seen or heard of before. And it's this thing where it's like, 
I don't know if this is money saving or they think it's not worth the effort <laughs> or the time, but it's like, you see a movie like this or a movie like Heat, which I believe Blake has seen before. Once and it's twice. like, you you understand how crucial it is that every single role can be cast with somebody interesting, somebody bringing something to it and to bring it um, back to PTA. Another thing he said during this Q&A with Martin Brest was, he said, this is the best cast uh, from not just uh, um, uh, Grodin and De Niro, but the waitress with chorizo and eggs, every Indian in the back <laughs> of the truck, just like going down the line. And that is a thing that you see in Paul Thomas Anderson's movies, you know, even carrying through to like Harriet Sansom Harris, getting this standout scene in Phantom Thread for what, how many minutes of screen time? Is it, you know, three or four minutes maybe? And leaving such an impression, similarly in Licorice Pizza coming back, having, you know, eight minutes on the phone, sitting across the desk from them and just, you know, completely coming alive in that. And I feel like the thing that he does through his films and his casting is he shows the world what somebody can do. And then everyone else, including other filmmakers, are the beneficiaries. You know, mm -hmm. everyone else casts based on the way that PTA has kind of used these people, even looking at like, like Gus Van Sant's Psycho in 98. It's like, half the cast is like ported over from Boogie Nights and the other half <laughs> is like from like Fargo and the Coen brothers. It's like incredible time capsule. And you see these people, you know, uh, Catherine Waterston in Inherent Vice, you know, kind of getting the Harry Potter franchise and the Alien franchise and people going, I've never seen her. That was incredible what she did. You know, I want to use her in something. And so, yeah, that that is definitely something um, that I feel like is probably the most direct line of anything in this movie and circles all the way back to him seeing Philip Baker Hall and going, that's my guy. A friend of ours, actually, I won't say like which streamer, but had a meeting with one of the major streamers and they told them it was like one of the worst meetings they had ever had that um, all they care about is the poster. And they said, you know, if it's a comedy, all we need is one name, like a a movie star and if it's a drama they need two stars and that's it they said we don't necessarily care if people watch our movies like we already have your money it's fine we need a poster and we need the celebrity and that's how like in order to get your movie made you need one for a comedy two for and then we can talk and it's like that's what it is it's just about the poster yep well, in a way, it's good because it's a, it's a big no thanks from me. And if, if they're <laughs> yes, going yes. to be making content that is just wholeheartedly not for me, but it's for someone, then great. And yeah. you can leave the real artists over here <laughs> who care about the work and want to make good stuff. And that's where I'll be watching my stuff. Yeah. I think yeah. the trouble is when you're not in the in-between period and you're getting the Irishman and marriage story and going well, can there be more of this? But I think what's naturally kind of selecting and sorting itself out is th those are going to be in different buckets and the way that there were Disney Channel original movies and they were a different quality than what Disney would put yeah. in the theaters. That's fine. It's not looking down on that stuff. It's to say that that's a different thing and that's fine over here. But please leave some space for the people who want to do this kind of work. Can I have one one quick bit of trivia that I uncovered last night, which I'm not saying there's any connection here, but apparently, maybe you guys know this, 
there were three direct-to-video sequels to Midnight Run. Yeah. Starring oh, wow. Christopher McDonald from Happy Gilmore. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. Letterboxd was like, oh, it's related to these movies. I was like, <laughs> what's this? Started scanning the cast list of Midnight Run for Your Life, which is the title from 1994, which includes a young Melora Walters. So I'm not saying that PTA saw <laughs> the third uh, directed video sequel to Midnight Run because he was such a fan, but I'm not saying he didn't see it either because so, it does predate Heart Eight. So there you have it. Ooh. Extra credit from Corey. Extra credit. Let, and, all credit and, to Letterboxd. And yeah. Ethan is so furious right now that he's going to have to go and watch Midnight Run for your life. <laughs> I have those. Yeah, I've only watched like one of them and it was not a good experience. Yes. What is the what is the conceit? Is it the same characters played by different people? Yeah. It's just I, Jack Walsh on different missions. Yeah, yeah, I believe yes, Christopher McDonald is Jack Walsh. And yeah. each each title is Midnight Run and then a few words tacked on to that, like Star Trek Run into around. Darkness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, it's the same as this being a series of like pulp novels, I guess, and it would function that way perfectly well. But, but that's a that's a bit of a downgrade casting wise. That's why it went in the bin, Ethan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was on the USA Network, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yes. Why nice. is it? What is it about these movies that makes them feel not real? Like my wife and I were deciding what to watch <laughs> the other night, and it was between Joyride and this Netflix movie, and I was like, "Well, we have to watch Joyride because that's a real movie." And she's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, the Netflix movie is not a real movie. It's like it's it's like it's made with artificial ingredients. It doesn't like it's there's something it's, so hard to pin down. Cinematic what MSJ. feels unreal. Yeah. I just call yeah. it salad dressing. I call that with <laughs> casting, too. Like, you know, there's I can't pick a lot of the leads today, like out of a lineup. Like if you put all, like, all the tailors and all the. All these different people. <laughs> all the and, tailors. Like, <laughs> I don't know. All of these different guys who, you know, they're all like cute and bland and beige. And I don't know. I just call them salad dressing guys. And <laughs> yeah, I like the char- the people with faces. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Fit yeah. of the world. Yeah. Yes. Or the John Ashton's. Yeah. Yes. yes. People who have been real human beings. PBH. Oh. Uh, apparently another interesting thing, which just to, cause I'm going to do my darndest to say nothing about this movie from myself and everything about how PTA might possibly relate to it. Uh, but one thing that I did come across was Yaffa Kodo, uh, in the movie, uh, it gave a quote, uh, in 2015. And so I thought this was, uh, interesting in regards to kind of the way the movie was made. Apparently he and Martin Brest did not get along very well and did not <laughs> like him, didn't like the process. And uh, Yafakoto says, uh, Midnight Run was practically the most difficult movie I ever made. Marty Brest doesn't do one take. He shoots a lot of footage, one take after another, all kinds of different ways, experimenting to see if something extraordinary happens. Then, even if it does, he'll try something else. I didn't know whether it was a comedy or a drama. It could go either way. What I was surprised about is that what I thought was going to be funny was funny. And what I thought was going to be dramatic was even funnier. Mm-hmm. Ethan, does that sound like any other filmmakers <laughs> that you are aware of in terms of method of working uh, on their movies? Well, I mean, certainly. Um, who, who are you thinking of specifically? Because it's it's it, it applies to different guys in different ways. Um, I mean, there's there's the Kubrick thing. 
which is is not really PTA's thing, but he is a Kubrick guy. Um, is that what you're looking for? No, no, I'm saying I I don't think the the way it read to me wasn't the take after take because I'm looking for a thing. It read to me more the freewheeling latter half of PTA's career, the kind mm -hmm. of inherent vice, Josh Brolin, the set was chaos, you know, kind of mm -hmm. thing. And then what comes out in the wash, Phantom Thread, oh, it's funnier than I expected. It feels like it's going to take a dark turn and then it mm -hmm. pulls back. It's this thing where, you know, he's shooting the scene over again in a different location. He's trying a different tone. He's trying a one take here, Reese, Joaquin, sit on this park bench. I'm just going to push in and it's going to be 10 minutes of dialogue in one shot because the way we shot it in the diner didn't work and we're going to do it again. And this, this idea of kind of, uh, you know, it's like the, the structure is there and he kind of knows what it is, but the room to experiment within that and try stuff and play you know, just read so much like the way that he's started working, you know, punch drunk love onward, we'll say. Yeah, I was just going to say the only reason I didn't pick up Corey's bait immediately is just the idea that that nobody I don't think has ever complained about PTA um, as uh, the, the experimenting, um, which he has definitely gotten much more uh, look for it on the day and look for it in the moment. And he just seems to have such massive, massive goodwill with actors. It's really remarkable. Like, I mean, Burt Reynolds aside, um, <laughs> who has ever complained about working with him? Well, who's ever not given their career best performance <laughs> in one of his movies? It's like, you, right. You, well, Burt Reynolds even, included. <laughs> I know, exactly. It's like, even if they didn't get along or never worked with him again, like Mark Wahlberg, it's like hard to argue that it's at least not in the conversation, you know, from Tom Cruise on down, you know, it's like uh, the, the end result kind of speaks for itself. Um, Spencer confidential straight in the bin. Boogie nights. Exactly. <laughs> Resplendent on the shelf for all time. In in the halls of the heavens. And boy, <laughs> if you can get to that 70 millimeter print, if it, it if it comes around, because I, I do believe the plan is to take it around. I know it's at Lincoln Center in New York soon. And so I think the hope was to find other, you know, theaters that can play it. And if if you can get to it, uh short plane ride or otherwise, Blake, I, I highly recommend. I, I did want to go back to one thing um kind of the way we were talking about like the the fine line between comedy and drama so i i kind of wanted to ask uh, maybe to, i mean to all of you but to blake and jen specifically uh here's my thought experiment for you uh and ethan wrote about this in his amazing letterbox review which is basically danny elfman's score to the movie yes um so my thought experiment to you is um if 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 Midnight Run had the score from Thief and Thief had the score from Midnight Run, yes. would Midnight Run be a drama and Thief be a comedy? <laughs> or or within 20% of that other genre, just because I feel like the score is so insistent that this is a comedy, even when the actors are playing it straight, that you know, I was like, with a different score, with like some intense tangerine dream through most of this, I'm not sure that people would be like, this is only a rollicking good time. How fun. I think they'd be like, Charles Grodin is pretty funny in a few of the scenes in this, you know, crime drama. <laughs> but that's I am, I am begging, begging the internet the editor. Yeah. To just the first five minutes 
Diamond Dairy, like that, like get the Diamond Dairy track from Tangerine Dream, like that opening heist in Thief. Get that and then get that track and play it under the opening of Midnight Run and then do the inverse with Midnight Run. That's yeah, what I want to say. At the beginning of Thief with Danny Elfman's score yeah, blurring yeah, away, yeah. you think, wow, what a good time I'm about to have. <laughs> <laughs> that That's like interesting. That, that, would, that would be amazing. But it is Danny Elfman's best score. That's the other thing that we we've discovered is like it's his best score that's it's close i i don't know uh, yeah (laughs) it's his best score i love it i love it big reactions to that claim well what's your best like batman right well when i close my eyes at night the batman theme the batman theme but that's just that's just in my dna so yeah i I named my son i named my son keaton Keaton, so i i get it i get it yeah but but i i'd like as as a score, like the Batman score, like obviously there's more stuff that's more iconic and that has been used so much more and been leveraged into other stuff. But that I, I that's why I love this is because like I would never have guessed that it was Danny Elfman in a million years until never. we started this project. Like I like um, I hadn't even connected that, and so it's been interesting with some of our guests to talk about it because I'm like I've never in a million years would have thought it was Danny Elfman. If the score had an album title that wasn't the Midnight Run soundtrack, the words that kept coming to mind, and I have no idea why other than the harmonica, was Honkin' on Bobo. That was like an Aerosmith <laughs> album from the 2000s. It was like, what does this score sound like? And to me, it sounds like Honkin' on Bobo. This has been Midnight Run Through with Blake Howard and Jen Johans. We'll be back next week with another episode, but until then... See you in the next life. See you in the next life.